Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances, the podcast where we take you down the rabbit hole into the enigmatic world of the strange, the paranormal, and the unknown. I'm Morgan Knutson. And I am Mike Brown, and it's time to dim the lights and settle in, come along with us on this week's adventure. So we're going to be talking about the Mothman in this episode, one of my favorite cryptids, but also the subject of a very poopy movie that I didn't like so much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I felt like the movie, there was something missing from it because the subject of Mothman, I think, is so in depth and it's so strange and there's so many aspects to this that like i don't know if you can get it all into one movie like it is so bizarre apparently john keel who wrote the book the mothman prophecies really enjoyed the movie which was disappointing to me as well his book was a better representation of what went on at that time and the movie felt really hollywoodized like they had taken it away from what had actually gone on so i know lots of people have seen the movie But let's talk about what people were going through at the time that this took place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in so many of these situations where Hollywood has gotten a hold of a story, usually the true story is way weirder, way more bizarre and far scarier than the 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 movies made out Mm -hmm. which is so strange because you know you think it would be the opposite but it but it isn't and this is really one of those cases where the truth is stranger than fiction and the people all over the world that have experienced this really strange kind of red-eyed giant winged oh whatever creature cryptid you know pick a pick a a genre i think everybody's got an opinion you know it's a it affects people in different ways and from people seeing you know lights in the sky to uh, tragedies that seem to surround some of these encounters to men in black to ufos i mean it's really intricate so the first sighting of what people presume was the mothman took place on november 12th 1966 and that was even before the famous encounter in point pleasant and in this one five men digging a grave in clendenin west virginia claimed to see a human-like figure fly over their heads and while it's not directly connected to the later reports this event set the stage for the mothman phenomena yeah it sure did and of course everybody that is into this phenomenon the research knows about the the bridge collapse in in point pleasant and the strange sightings from november 15th 1966 to december 15th 67 and uh it's just such a strange and bizarre story about how this creature seemed to be intermingled into people's lives and changed how we look at these types of incidents for, well, forever. I know our guests are going to get into it, but I'll repeat it here. November 15th, 1966, Roger and Linda Scarberry, along with Steve and Mary Millette, reported encountering a large winged creature with glowing red eyes near the TNT area in Point Pleasant. And this was an abandoned munition site from World War II. 
and it would become the central locale for numerous Mothman sightings. According to their account, the creature chased their car as they were leaving the area, reaching speeds of up to 100 miles an hour. That's craziness. Yeah, and even down to volunteer firemen, not long after, saw it as well. And they were even describing this thing as like a large bird with red eyes. Uh, The Mason County Sheriff uh, commented that he even believed that the sightings were maybe some kind of bird that was being misidentified. But I, I mean, as we go along with these stories, it becomes pretty obvious to me that witnesses weren't seeing a bird. They were seeing something completely new. When I read the descriptions of the Mothman, it really brings to mind what you and I saw when we were on that property outside of Edmonton in the winter, this past winter. Yeah. And I saw something in the woods that I couldn't quite determine the shape of it was this thing that didn't appear quite real somehow. Uh, You know, when people depict the Mothman, a lot of times it's this creature that's furry, the tendrils of its fur or whatever reach out into reality, and then it has big red eyes. Now, I didn't see any red eyes, but I did see some shape, some anomalous shape moving back and forth outside the property line. I thought of that when I was reading all this research that I did for Mothman. The thing about that type of a drawing as well is they, they kind of draw Mothman oftentimes to be this kind of amorphous, mm-hmm. blobby kind of shape, which is exactly like what we were seeing. Yeah. And it makes you wonder just how many of these creatures have this, I don't know whether, and I don't know what that is, whether it's our, our you know, our senses maybe aren't translating this properly. So we're having trouble focusing on it. Maybe we don't have a point of reference. Right. You know, yeah. so our set, like it makes you wonder exactly what's creating that but you know it's something something that's there you know it's something that's moving it's but you know it just doesn't seem to be quite defined enough and it it makes you wonder if things like this and encounters whether it be mothman or you know things like what we saw are related in some way maybe these things are coming from from a you know a, a place the the same place or is I don't know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way I feel about it. Some sort of, it's something other is the best way that I can describe it, is it is something other from elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, what else can you say, you know? And I think uh, so many people that, you know, hear stories like this, and I mean, and understandably so, you know, might look at that and say, well, you know, it's dark. Well, you know, your senses aren't, you know, picking Mm -hmm. up on things properly or uh, whatever, but it, it is more than that. And there is something, when these people are are describing these these strange shadows that move, that seem to have some sort of dimension to them, that are moving through free space, there is something there. And it is very clear. Like when you're seeing it, it's very, very clear. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to our guests. And we have two of them. And who are they? We have good friends of mine, Chad Lewis and Steve Ward, both who are researchers into this phenomenon and speakers. And Steve is also the MC of the upcoming Mothman Festival every year. Uh, they are an amazing duo and is a very, very good friends of mine. But if anybody can get to the bottom of this, it's Chad and Steve. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. You and me both. Let's do this. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So this is really exciting for for me because I've had Mike, I've had some pretty weird stuff go on in the last like, couple of weeks that I haven't told you about. Okay. <laughs> some like high strangeness stuff that's been going on. So this is like really fitting to have this conversation <laughs> when we're having this conversation. And I will like expand on this as as we go on. But uh we've got Chad Lewis and Steve Ward in the house, which is amazing. So thank you guys so much for coming. Oh, heck, I'm sure it was our pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and Chad, you've been here before, but uh, we're new to you, Steve. So tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I guess I uh, I grew up in Michigan and uh, the first major uh, Mothman sighting took place in November of 1966. I was uh, in junior high at the time. And that particular sighting where it chased two couples out of the uh, infamous TNT area down Route 62, was carried uh, all over the world. It hit the wire services, was even in the Stars and Stripes newspaper uh, in the military. And I thought, how cool is that, man, a winged humanoid chasing people down a a two-lane highway? And this was a few months after, uh, in March of uh, 1966, we had a wave of UFO sightings that uh, attracted Dr. J. Allen Hayek to come down when Mm. he was still attached to Project Blue Book. And it was that time period where he uttered the uh, infamous phrase, swamp gas. So uh, <laughs> that was quite a year, and I think that's what kind of uh, set me on my path. So, And, and after that, I, I started reading uh, authors like John Keel, every every book I could get my hands on. I, I was of the era where, you know, back in the old days, we used to haunt our libraries to find every obscure book you could on UFOs or the paranormal. And unfortunately, there were several on uh, contactees like George Adamski, but they had some pretty cool photographs in there. So that's that's how I got started. And uh, I've kind of been following that path ever since. And um, I would say uh, researchers like John Keel and Jacques Vallée are, are the ones that, uh, not right away, but as time went on, those are the guys that really influenced my thinking and kind of geared me away from my original thoughts of these things being extraterrestrial and so forth exclusively. My my main interest, I guess you could say, are these high strangeness areas where all these different kinds of things come together. That's so interesting. I know what it is like to live so close to something so weird that has happened <laughs> over the years. I, Chad and I, we've talked about this before where I live about 20 minutes from the infamous uh, when or basically one of the most famous Wendigo attacks, which was Swift Runner. 
and I'm really, really close to that. So it's so surreal living so close to, to, to something that was. I mean, it affected so much and has become legend. Well, well, now I live in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I'm literally a few blocks away from where the Silver Bridge would stood that collapsed. I live right on the road that the Scarberries and the Mallets were chased by the infamous Wing Garuda. So you could say I'm right in the thick of it. But I'm sure a lot of the people that are, are listening to this definitely know what Mothman is. They've at least seen the image of the dark creature with the bright red eyes and the great big wings. But it, there's been other people, it even mentioned in uh, John Ke- one of John Keel's articles, and we'll get to him in a little bit, that have seen the face of this thing. Did you guys want to describe this thing a little bit for people? Chad, do you want to pitch in on that? Yeah, I'll let Steve take this and I'll pitch in. I'm just here mainly to be Steve's cheerleader and hype man in his corner (laughs) to boost him up. But uh, no, but um, yeah, Steve, take this and I'll just chime in. Chad is just so embarrassing sometimes, you know. (laughs) So everybody knows it's listening. Like this is literally every time... (laughs) <laughs> a lot of us get together. This is what happens. This is so be prepared for the next hour to be reminiscing and, something like this. And be prepared for Chad's old guy jokes. He hasn't oh, done any no. yet, but just just sit on the edge of your seat. <laughs> well, okay, the Mothman. Uh, generally speaking, people describe something that was six to seven foot tall, uh, roughly humanoid, a ten foot wingspan, and red glowing eyes. And uh, not everybody. Some people just said, were insisted that it was just a very large bird, and there may be something to that, uh, the shape of this thing. Um, so generally speaking, uh, and John Keel, who was, the, we'll talk about him a little bit more, but he was the uh, uh, the journalist who came down from New York to start investigating this, eventually wrote the Mothman Prophecies. He talked to a little over 100 people uh, between November of 1966 and December of 1967, roughly that time period. And the descriptions, again, were generally the same. The thing that was odd about it was the behavior. Uh, It's very difficult to try and decide whether this was simply a flesh-and-blood creature or something more like an apparition. Uh, This thing didn't always flap its wings when it took off. It sometimes took off straight like a helicopter, but would put its wings behind it and zip right up. Didn't act like a bird. Uh, Some biologists would probably say that a 10-foot wingspan couldn't lift something that was seven foot. Um, it, uh, a lot of people that saw this thing, including Linda Scarberry, one of the first witnesses, one of the people that was chased in the car down Route 62, uh, they, many of them had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena when they got home. You know, how do we reconcile that? Uh, John Keel got a couple reports uh, where people were in close proximity where it sounded almost like it might be mechanical or, or making some kind of a humming noise. And a Mrs. Thomason, who lived in the TNT area, saw this thing moving very quickly like a robot. Uh, uh, Faye DeWitt, when she saw it, she went out there with her siblings, her brother, thought it was a big joke, and they were going to go out and find the Mothman. Uh, unfortunately, they did. She said she didn't actually see it fly. It was running next to the car and sort of leapt up on top of the old North Power Plant. So there's a lot more, but uh, there was even the guy, the town official that was went outside on his front porch, saw this thing standing there. He went to a trance for about 10 minutes, and then when he woke up, it took off. So again, to try and reconcile all these things together and try and come up with a definitive definition of what this was is almost impossible. There's only uh, 
Connie Carpenter, who was one of the early uh, people that saw this, she was driving by the Mason County Golf Course. Uh, she saw it take off straight like a helicopter. It flew over her car. She saw the face, but she had a hard time uh, describing it. She said it was science fiction-like. Just one other quick aside here. Uh, she had a case of conjunctivitis afterwards. Now, normally, the this eye burn or whatever is often associated with cl- close proximity of a of some kind of a UFO or strange light. And but she got it when she saw the Mothman. John Keel was discovering that people that experience cryptids and or UFOs, these lights, would suffer from the same physical ailments sometimes, conjunctivitis, thirst, uh, muscle ache, and so forth. So it's just very interesting that she saw essentially an unknown creature, but it re- it affected her in the same way it might have if she had a close encounter with a UFO. Yeah, what I loved about the case and still love are, one, the glowing red eyes, because as we all know, the glowing red eyes seem to be a hallmark of a lot of cryptids throughout history, from the Big Muddy Monster, to the Enfield Horror, to Hellhounds, even dating back to Spring-Heeled Jack in the uh, 1830s over in the UK. But Steve brought up a great point about the eye burns, um, close UFO activity thought to be very similar. We have a case in northern Minnesota, my neighbor, of 1979, where Val Johnson, a police officer, thought he encountered a UFO. He had missing time, and when officers got to him, he had the same thing, like welder burns on his eyes. So this isn't something where Steve alluded to earlier of people saying it was a sandhill crane. We have a lot of sandhill cranes where I live, and I've never seen them and then came home with welder burns on my eyes. No. (laughs) (laughs) So strange because it does bring up the question, you know, is, you know, is, is there some type of radiation in the area? Like, what is it that people are picking up on? I mean, like... It's one thing to be able to go and see something, and I mean, my, like myself and you know, you guys as as fellow investigators, it's one thing to have people come back and report and say, "Yeah, you know, I saw this thing," and of course, you, you have to kind of rule out whatever those things might have been mistaken for. But I mean, when you're coming back with physical symptoms, that's a whole nother ballgame. Like that, to me, puts this in another category where you, you know, even even the skeptics have to at that point say. Okay, something happened here. You know, there's no doubt that uh, when the the hysteria hit, I mean, people, the TNT area, by the way, that I mentioned, is about nine miles north of Point Pleasant. It was uh, an area where they made uh, explosives, dynamite, for Mm -hmm. the war effort. And if you look at the old photographs from the 1940s, you see this huge complex. Well, even by the 1960s, most of it was abandoned. The the old North Power Plant was still there. But uh, that that was, uh, and now it's the McClintic Wildlife Area. But that was uh, that was where it was for a scene. At the height of this, people are, are are filing into the TNT area with these long lines of cars. That's why John Keel and people like Mary Hired, the reporter he teamed up with, went south of there down to Gallopus Ferry to to watch the UFOs. But I, there's no doubt that that uh, when when people are loaded up with their rifles and their bow and arrows, thinking they're going to bag themselves a Mothman. Uh, uh, that they, if they saw a shadow that might have been an owl or a sandhill crane or just a tree stump, uh, everyone's, you know, some of these things that they saw may not have been the Mothman, but clearly some of these experiences and sightings were something quite anomalous. Yeah, absolutely. 
We often think of these places that get overrun with curious sight seekers and hunters and amateur legend trippers and the like as being a new phenomenon. But what I love is that all of these old sightings dating back generations, the towns were flooded with people, people showing up with tranquilizer guns, cages. It's amazing that we didn't have more fatalities of people shooting one another thinking that they were the monster. It's not the truth. And, you know, that's it brings up something interesting, too, because we've been talking about the, the TNT sightings, which we'll get to in a second. And, but even John Keel was mentioning that there was reports of some pretty strange things, even back in the 50s, mm-hmm. uh, that people were looking at and going, you know, well, maybe like it, maybe these were early sightings, like just seeing things that they would describe as this giant bird that seemed to be unexplained. Um, and it, but it, and that was, as I say, back 1950s esque. But it wasn't until 1966, or Steve, like you were saying that this crazy encounter happens at this war munitions sighting. Uh, so what what exactly happened? Because we've kind of touched on this a little bit. This couple ends up literally getting chased in their car outside of this munitions factory, like just super scary. Yes, it was uh, November 15th, 1966. Uh, the two mirrored couples, the Scaraberries and the Mallets, they were driving around this area, which had become kind of a Lover's Lane, and they were just driving around to see if they could find some of their friends. It also had become quite a drag strip. The the road there down by the old farm museum is where they used to uh, drag their cars, drag race their cars. So uh, this one particular night, it's dark. Uh, they're driving along the, along the road right next to the old North Power Plant, which was still standing. And Linda sees what she thinks is a uh, a man standing in the road. She says, What's that guy doing standing in the road? Well, that guy all of a sudden spread his wings by about 10 feet. And then they noticed the red eyes, and it kind of uh, shuffled off. It was by the fence. It shuffled off toward the old north power plant. And then they decided they'd better take off. And so they did. Now, they, they zipped out uh, the farm the farm road to uh, uh, Route 62 and, and made a left to go down to Point Pleasant. Immediately by the road sign there, they saw it or another one just standing there. And uh, it was, again, it was six, seven foot tall, man-like. And uh, they hit, uh, supposedly, they hit speeds close to 100 miles an hour. Now, I've driven that road many times, and there's a lot of bends there where you don't want to be anywhere near 100 miles an hour. The first place they stopped was a place called Tiny's Restaurant. It was to be a famous sighting of the Mothman passing overhead several months later. Linda used to work there. She went to talk to her boss. Now, I'm, this, 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 this information I'm getting... It, uh, Jeff Wamsley, who had been a friend of Linda Scarberry for years, he was her paper boy. They lived in the same street. We, you know, how cool is that? You got a monster growing up in your in, when you're growing up in your hometown, and you also have some of the witnesses on your street. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Wow. So Jeff went on to found the Mothman Museum, if I'm correct. The Mothman Museum, a couple other businesses, and the the infamous uh, Mothman Festival which I will be speaking on John Keel on Sunday and an obscure uh, lecturer named Chad Lewis will be talking <laughs> about the Wendigo on Saturday. But he's, he's opening up for an even bigger act, I think, uh, Kevin Lee Nelson, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> that is correct. And I love, uh, obviously, Steve's a treasure trove of information and he's just bringing up all these topics and I'm, I'm hitting on them where 
I wanted to get back a, a bit about how in some of the cases or sightings that the Mothman, that the wings seem to be more for show than function. And we see that in a lot of other cryptids from the Van Meter Visitor to way back to the Jersey Devil, the New Jersey Devil, where its wings were too small to lift a, a cat, much less a big giant horse-like creature. So it seems as though these things expect to have wings or we expect them to, so they have them, but they might not necessarily even need them. Yet, yet Chad, uh, on the, the Van Meter Visitor, you know, some of these, these creatures, in some respects, it was very odd with the, the light that seemed to be uh, coming from its the mm-hmm. horn or the beak and some of its other properties. Yet, when it was on, there was a, a sighting when it was on the telephone pole and it went down the pole the same way like a parrot does, using yeah. its beak to help get down. And even uh, at one point was kind of running and flapping its wings to kind of get some airspeed. So you had this duality where some aspects of this, whatever it was, didn't seem to be uh, following the laws of physics, and in other ways it did. And with the Mothman, in similar ways, it, it, it seemed like it left some kind of footprints behind. But So you get this crazy duality, but uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right to, to point out that these patterns exist with these different creatures or cryptids over different parts of the world and different uh, time periods. That's so interesting to me because, like, I've I've noticed little things like that as well throughout different reports that I've read mm-hmm. and things that I've seen, um, in, including which we've 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 heard reports on with with Mothman, uh, Dogman, Sasquatch, which is these bright glowing eyes, and of course Mothman is known for these red, bright, bright eyes. And for years, and I mean years, I was one of these people that was like. It's eye shine. It's eye shine. People are, you know, you're you're shining your flashlight, you're shining your headlights, and they're reflecting back like you'd see a cat or dog or something with that that uh, that type of eye, that lens, nocturnal lens. And it wasn't until I had my own encounters with dogmen here in Alberta that I realized it's not eye shine. It, it's not eye shine. It's not even close to eye shine. These look like bright Christmas lights or somebody with two LED lights they're so bright and it just sort of lends to that again that that what you were you guys were talking about which is there's these elements to these creatures that almost mirror something that we'd have in nature like you know wings that don't work or or something like that but they don't seem to have the same purpose that was an aha moment for me just now I'm just taking in this siren for them coming for Steve finally. <laughs> Steve, you want to quick uh, get a couple bits in before they take you away? <laughs> yes, uh, to c- c- continue uh, the uh, the story, when they fled the TNT area and they stopped at the restaurant first, it was uh, her, her boss that suggested that they go to the police department. And I think he called ahead. So they, they went there, the four of them, and they, uh, they were separated and told their own story. Jeff has some of the original documents in the Mothman Museum. And they're uh, you know, reprinted so you can read them easily. And uh, their stories matched. So two of them, the, oh. the, the Mallets, uh, uh, Steve and Mary Mallet, ha- won't speak about it anymore and, and haven't. Uh, right. Roger Scarberry is off in Ohio somewhere, and he's been in touch with Jeff, and I think they're going to have a discussion, which would be very cool. Uh, uh, Linda Scarberry is a lady I got to talk to several times before she passed. And she never deviated in her story. And so, and, and you know, these people had a really rough time because uh, 
some of the locals tell me, you know, back in those days, you you just didn't talk about this stuff. You know, uh, it's, it's it's sometimes it's bad enough now, but several decades ago, you kept your mouth shut. You would never ever admit to anything like this because of the ridicule that would follow. Is there any speculation about why the first one that you mentioned here took place near the power plant? Does the power plant feature in it in some way? Why would the creature be kind of hanging out by a power plant? I, I don't know. It, that The power plant was long dead. Mm. Mothman-like creatures were seen occasionally earlier in the 60s. Um, so there, there may, may not be a connection. There was actually okay. a few days earlier, there was something like the Mothman seen in the shadows over Clendenning in a cemetery. You can imagine that several grave diggers are out there that night and they see this this apparition, this thing, this man with wings. Well, I think I would I'd get another job real quick. But uh, so I, I don't know that there's any connection there. But, uh, you know, sometimes I think these patterns are probably very deep and very hidden. Yeah. And Mike, I think it more so than being a power plant, I think the abandoned area Mm. And we find that in so many cryptids, whether it's an abandoned old coal mine right. or the TNT area, these places where, you know, they're almost forgotten. They make the perfect stomping grounds for something that doesn't want to be found. Yeah. It was a burial ground. I mean, there are a lot of Native Americans buried from uh, past uh, battles in that area. So it has quite a history of violence. That's interesting, too, uh, to me, especially in, in regards to this sort of the spiritual side of this stuff because that's one a pattern that i've noticed over the years in hauntings and things like that is that these whatever thought and focus thought has kind of been been i get nurtured in in that space seems to seems to produce certain things seems to produce almost like these different consciousness and uh, mike and i we've talked about the philip experiment before in in uh, that took place in Toronto, Ontario, uh, where it, a group from Menso was actually able to like produce consciousness out of this focused, this focused thought. And so it's always interesting to me that that seems to be very much tied in with these as well. But a few days later, November 15th, 1966, another sighting ended up happening. And that encounter seemed to open what seemed to be like a floodgate of reports that was going on. Is that right? Yes, and, and it was funny because some of them took place because people went out there looking for it, sure. thinking there wasn't anything to it. Oh, we're going to go uh, to so-and-so's house and tap on the glass to see if we can't freak them out. Well, that was uh, Marcella Bennett and her brother, and they the, the, the parents were home. So as they were leaving and were walking, going, walking back to the car, and Marcella Bennett is holding her infant child, this thing rises up out of the ground. Her, her brother was trying to get her attention because he saw some strange light moving in the sky. She wasn't interested. And then this thing rose up. She really freaked her out. She actually dropped her infant child. She was all right. And she was stunned for a minute. And she picked her up. They ran back in the house. This thing came up on the porch and was walking back and forth on the porch. Wow. So, you know, it was, uh, uh, yeah, you're right. It did, it, for whatever reason... It did open the floodgates. And of course, there are all kinds of bizarre things going on. Strange lights going overhead, people having uh, uh, bedroom invaders, the men in black syndrome, or whatever you want to call it, uh, animal mutilations, just, uh, that, you know, a three-ring circus of the paranormal. Well, and that's a side, I think, with the Mothman that people don't realize, that it's not just this, you know, red-eyed winged creature. There is stuff that's going on around 
this phenomenon. It's like when this seems to happen to a town or an area, it's it's invaded by all of this other stuff that starts going on. Men in black, like you were saying, strange lights in the sky, these animal mutilations. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I think that's something that people don't often associate with these critters. Uh, and, and then the other aspect is the prophecies, part of the Mothman prophecies. Mm. It was where John Keel, in the midst of all this craziness, was in contact with many individuals. He called them silent contactees because while they firmly believed they were in contact with some other intelligence. And I think sometimes we were talking about channeling and so forth. It's not clear as to whether or not they were actually speaking to an individual. But he, uh, uh, they started you know, getting prophecies and so forth. Uh, and, but the point is these people firmly believed in what they were doing that uh, they were given quests sometimes, but they did had no interest in publicity. So they became the silent contactees. And that's what kind of led up to the bizarre circumstances of the Silver Bridge collapse on December 15th, 1967. Mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, the other aspects, uh, uh, John Keel, Mary Hyard, and other people went uh, several miles south down to Gallipolis Ferry, back on the old Howards, man. And it's it's pretty desolate back there in some areas now. Imagine what it was like back 50 years ago. So they, they found a particular hill they could sit on, and they'd watch these strange lights go overhead all night. Uh, it was like this in, in different parts of the Ohio Valley. The Lilly family that lived on Camp Conley Road, that was kind of like the southern border of the TNT area, they, they had lights going on all the time. They knew that when their TV started acting up, there'd be some of those strange lights that'd be buzzing overhead. Uh, the one daughter uh, named Linda, she had a, a bedroom apparition of something that looked like a man in black come into her room, and he was wearing the he was wearing a checkered shirt. Uh, Ch- Ch- Chad, I'm sure you know about the checkered shirt syndrome. I've had people contact me about entities from spirits to werewolves wearing checkered or plaid. Uh, shirts or coats or one described it as what you would consider a college professor wearing this overcoat a plaid one with the elbow patches on and everything but it brings up that the window areas as keel called them or portals where you get all sorts of different phenomena happening in a small little area and oftentimes when you go and start interviewing people and witnesses and you kind of let them go with the entire story, they'll start bringing in other things where they might have seen a UFO, but then they had a strange uh, synchronicity or they had some other weird ghostly encounters. So it seems to be that these are sort of portal areas. You know, when I first read about the checkered shirt syndrome, I guess you could call it, that John Keel covered, uh, I was a little skeptical. And then several years ago, my ex-wife and I were down visiting her uncle in Tennessee. His lady friend was over, and as happens, we all got talking about the paranormal. She knew very little about the literature. And at one point, she said that she saw this man appear by her bed at night. And she paused, and she said, it was funny. He was wearing a checkered shirt. And I thought, holy cow, this is confirmation. I didn't say anything, but I thought, man, I was not, I was not seeing that coming. That is fascinating. I've not heard the checkered shirt thing. No, which me is, neither. I've never heard that. So what do you guys think that is? Like, do you have any theories on why that's become such an iconic representation in these images? I, I, I've got a half-baked one, Chad, but you go ahead. 
I think that it just adds to the weirdness of it that nobody will believe it. So it's weird. It's very reminiscent of men in black stories where they behave in such a weird manner or condition in which nobody would believe that it actually happened. The more bizarre they can make it, the more, you know, preposterous it seems that if somebody tells you they see something in their room, some creature of some sort, you could at least believe in the possibility of that. But now they're wearing some Paul Bunyan flannel or checkered shirt. And it seems a little strange and you might just disregard it. So I think part of it, in my opinion, is that the weirder it sounds, the more likely you can get away with it. And and Jacques Vallée said, the phenomena negates itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One other wild possibility, I thought, if they were really dealing with a checkered shirt, dark and light, perhaps it's sort of a representative of the negative and positive polarities and one sort of imprints on the entity or, or whatever their their belief system. If they think it's something angelic, it will be. If they think it's something negative, it will be. Yeah. But I don't. Uh, I, I think Chad's onto something when you know there, there are so many of these instances where uh, you know and, and people would talk about their experience, whether it's a, a UFO or Bigfoot or whatever, and a lot of times they would suppress the the, the wilder details. Because it's hard enough to get people to believe you saw that spaceship or you, or you saw that Sasquatch out in the wilderness without adding to the high strangeness factor. So as the story goes on, of course, probably the people that have heard the most about Mothman are aware of the Point Pleasant Bridge collapse, which is December of 67. And that and that is really the the birth, I think, of a lot of rumors that maybe the Mothman was some kind of an omen or it was like a harbinger of death of some sort and people became they were starting to associate it with 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 tragic events and, and stuff like that can we talk about that a little bit yes and that's that's where the the prophecy thing comes in a yes bit. um he uh, again these uh these silent contactees were getting a lot of legitimate prophecies uh plane crashes and so forth things that would come true and that would, so, you know, just kind of cement their trust and their belief in this, whatever it was, this source of information. And uh, and over time, they they started to talk about, they, they started to coalesce. They started to talk about an EM effect, whatever that was. It was going to occur on December 15th. You know, first, we didn't know the date. Then it was December 15th. Then it was going to be when President Johnson lit the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. And uh, there would be, I think, there were three days of darkness or, or whatever. A lot of disaster would be going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this time, John Keel admitted, now there's a chapter in the Mothman Prophecies that says paranoiacs are made, not born. And when he talked to Art Bell, when the film came out, he said that, that the thing the film really captured was my paranoia at the time. So, and, and he had, it's like so many people, so many of these predictions had come true, you know, like the I can't think of his name, the professor at University of Michigan. He had a whole series. They, they firmly believed they were in contact with these alien entities. And then the big one, man, the the, uh, the world's going to end on such and such a date. Uh, get on the hill. The aliens will protect you. Well, the aliens didn't show up, and neither did his tenure at the university that he was at. So uh, that's what happened there. So as this was coalescing, he, he firmly believed that something was going to happen. He, you know, there were... Uh, 
uh, Mary Heyer and uh, Mrs. Thomason, Thomason were having dreams of some kind of disaster on the river. He was misguided. He thought it was going to be in a factory or something blowing up. And when so here he is. He's actually in New York City, December 15th, and he has bought this completely. He's got jugs of water in his apartment, and the Christmas tree lighting happens, and there's no three days of darkness. But shortly thereafter, the, the bulletin came over that a bridge had collapsed between Point Pleasant and Gallupolis, Ohio. And mm-hmm. he was furious. Yeah. It was like something, some intelligence knew about this disaster, but either it couldn't express it or intentionally didn't let people know it was going to happen. And 46 people lost their lives that night. Oh, man. It's just, it's, I, I can't even imagine like what he must have been feeling at that point. He was he was furious. He was absolutely furious, and it took him hours to get through because of the phone lines. He finally got through to Mary Heyer about three in the morning, and, and to see you know you know they had he had a lot of friends down there, and he wanted to find out who was who was safe and and what had happened. Amazing. Yeah, the bridge collapse seems to be so intertwined with the Mothman case that back in two thousand seven, in the summer of two thousand seven. I was living in Minneapolis and the I-35 bridge collapsed over the Mississippi River. 13 people lost their lives. And I remember people contacting me asking if there were any Mothman-like sightings prior to that bridge collapsing as well. That if anyone had seen or heard of any premonitions of that bridge going down, I think that's how, again, associated the Mothman is with the bridge collapse. It reminds me too of, um, you know, even just not that long ago when one was sighted around the Chicago O'Hare Airport, and everybody was lost it because they were thinking, "Oh my gosh, there's going to be a, a plane crash. There's going to be like it was, it was crazy." I'm not sure that uh, that Mothman was a harbinger. Um, I think maybe all this stuff just happened at the same time. Yeah. So, and I certainly don't think that uh, Mothman caused a disaster. Um, but you know, I mean, who really knows? There was another bridge collapse on December fifteenth, but it took place about nineteen oh four on the Elk River, kind of north and east of Point Pleasant. Hmm. And uh, the ironic thing about that is, there's probably no connection. A few years later, around World War One, they were seeing large birdmen in the Elk River Valley. They, they've described them as kind of red plumage, twelve foot wingspan, uh, human like heads. And they were supposedly keeping their children indoors for fear that they might uh, uh, swoop down and scoop them up. And that's uh, that's mentioned in a book called A Haunted Valley by James Gay. And there's not much more information on that. But interesting that we had another wave of uh, birdmen sightings uh, several decades before. It's fascinating to me when you we can look back on some of these cases and see the... Uh, the the patterns that seem to be emerging and they're really really interesting. So we've talked a lot about about John Keel. Let's talk about John Keel because his his fascination with this stuff didn't start with Mothman. He was an investigator of all sorts of different things, the Yeti and UFOs, and he was really 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 into this stuff. Do you think that maybe his fascination fascination and and interest really put him in this position? to be a receiver of some of this information because i know like even for myself like the more attention you know that i put into this this these subject matters the more seems to appear like it's just 
I, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but there you just become sort of an attraction point for it. Do you think something like that was kind of going on with him? Because his story is really interesting. Yes, absolutely. He was kind of like a lightning rod for this stuff. He mm-hmm. he started out like so many of us thinking that we're we're dealing with extraterrestrial visitors or whatever. Yeah. But as he went on, he discovered that, uh, and this is revealed more in Operation Trojan Horse, where he pulls so many of these things together that it just didn't seem to be tenable to to strictly look at this as uh, extraterrestrial visitation. He began to think that these things were a natural condition of the planet. And he and he talked about things like, and this is one of my favorite words of all time, transmogrifications of energy. The mm-hmm. only other time I've ever read transmogrification are in Kelvin and Hobbes comic strips, where he <laughs> has his transmogrifier, where he yes. changes him and Hobbes into all kinds of things. But... Uh, so he, he really thought, and, and this does like Chad was mentioning earlier, uh, the with the window areas, there was something about something to try to explain why these things seem to show up and and, uh, and, and scare the heck out of people, sometimes leave footprints, and then they're gone. Um, so and he thought that perhaps, again, these things were natural conditions of the planet, uh, but they we might even be something that we sort of co-create uh, if we think about the idea of tulpas. The, the lore of the Slender Man and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Philip experiment, where they created a, a somebody out of whole cloth for in the in the uh, in the Ouija board sessions. Um, that perhaps there, but there's more to it than that. It wasn't simply that we were conjuring up images or or, or whatever. Uh, but he uh, he uh, they, they, a lot of this stuff seemed to uh, what he would actually entertain bizarre theories sometimes, and then he would start getting reports to support those bizarre theories. Almost, and he talked a lot about the reflective nature of this and paranormal mimicry. I think Keel was like a hundred years ahead of his time, uh, ahead of every everybody with with this. Uh, and it's very it's very difficult to summarize John Keel in a few paragraphs. But uh, he, uh, uh, I, I would I don't know if I would recommend people plunge right into the Mothman prophecies because man, you're right in the thick of it. If you start out with something like strange creatures from time and space which is also known as the Guide to Mysterious Beings, uh, that'll kind of ease you in. And then you can get into the Mothman Prophecies and uh, Operation Trojan Horse. But uh, he uh, he had a, a lot of experiences himself. Well, he never saw the Mothman. He had some very close encounters with UFOs. He even suffered a severe case of conjunctivitis one night in one of the hollers in, uh, in, in, uh, in West Virginia. So uh, quite an amazing individual. And... Uh, and to sum up Keel, uh, Colin Wilson, the great Colin Wilson said that John Keel was incapable of writing a dull sentence. Wasn't conjunctivitis kind of a part of the experience for some people? It wasn't just Keel? Oh, sure. Yes. Uh, mostly people that uh, often had a close encounter with a, with a UFO or a strange light that you would get this eyebrow. Mm. That's what really gets me about some of these cases is the through that, that rub off of the the physical aspect mm-hmm. of it as well because you know like I was saying at the beginning you know anybody can say that they've seen anything but at the end of the day when you've got these sort of physical these physical traits or they're in an environment where you know like we were talking about the in the 1966 cases where they it's not in their best interest to come forward but, you know there is going to be that criticism there is and I mean we still get it today I mean you post something on Facebook or or social media, you know, threads or whatever, and immediately people are like, that's fake, you're a fake, you're a liar. 
Um, and I think people don't realize that it, it really is a bit of a sacrifice to come out if you are really telling the truth. I mean, if you're looking for likes and you're looking for clicks or that attention, you know, you're going to get it positive or negative. But at the end of the day, for people to come forward with their story, it's not as simple as what everybody makes it out to be as as in terms of, of attention. You know, like even there's in, uh, encounters and stuff that I've had over the years that, you know, I still don't mention in interviews because I think I'm like, you know what, it, people are going to are going to tear this to pieces and I don't have enough evidence to support it. So I just leave this stuff out. I think one interesting aspect about witnesses these days is Steve mentioned earlier how all the witnesses stories matched up. Yeah. And that was very important in the old days where skeptics would say, well, these people are reporting two different things, no credibility whatsoever. They were in the same car. But what we're learning more and more today is that people often experience what seems to be the same thing in a different manner. Absolutely. Whether these things are projecting themselves different to each person or we just human perception varies that much where I don't think it's uh, any less credible for four people in a car to see four different things when they should be seeing the same exact thing. Well, and case in point, two things is that case in point in in haunting cases and, and things like that, oftentimes it is like we are seeing the world and people don't understand is that we are seeing the world through our own filters. You know, here you go back to the 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 argument about the, you know, was that a blue and a black dress or was it a red or a white and a gold dress? That yeah. age old photo that went around online. Arr. And yeah, and people went to town on that. Like how how can you possibly see, you know, a blue and black dress? It's it's definitely white and gold. And I mean people were just having it out over this. It was the same dress, but our eyes perceive things in different ways. So so there's there's that aspect of it. Um, but also, I, I think one of the things psych psychologically, what people don't understand is that when somebody is repeating the same story again and again and again, and it's completely verbatim, that usually doesn't indicate somebody's telling the truth. In psychology, it usually indicates that there's the story's been rehearsed. Mm -hmm. So that's something really significant too, is the fact that you know if people are reporting things that are slightly different, or you know may not report it the same same way as the the friend or or whatever that's actually a good indicator that maybe something's happened here that the you know they weren't influencing each other and that there was no rehearsal involved and perhaps sometimes these things while it may be in quotes the same thing more or less doesn't necessarily manifest in exactly the same way yeah, that's a, that's a really, really great point as well. Mike, it reminds me back to a conversation that we had, and I don't remember who it was with, but we were talking about, um, like, we were talking about aliens, and we were talking about alien abduction, and that we, we were, the, the description of, of the sounds that people were hearing, and we, it, we had bled this kind of into the haunting subject as well, where somebody would say, oh, I heard footsteps on a carpet. Mm -hmm. And then the next person wouldn't describe it as footsteps on a carpet. They said it sounded like, you know, two brushes shuffling together. Sure. Or it sounded like, and everybody had a different description for the sound, but they were relating it to something that they were could, familiar with. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's like how, you know, a lot of that I think you see bled into this as well. Well, I saw a giant bird. Well, I saw, you know, an alien with red eyes. Well, I saw... You know, it's, it sounds very different, but at the end of the day, is it? I've got one for you. I interviewed a young lady once, and we're, we're familiar with the uh, 
poltergeist phenomena, sometimes people hear a baby crying where there's no yeah. baby. And also the uh, a lot of people that experience the Mothman uh, would hear, like the uh, Linda Scarabay would hear a electronic beeping noise outside her trailer. And mm-hmm. you'd get the strange phone calls and so forth. Well, this particular young lady was up with a friend late one night, and one of them heard a baby crying. And the other one, at the very same time, heard a beeping noise. And mm. she thought, her idea was, and I think it's valid, it was sort of like signal and noise. But I thought, here you have two, in quotes, different paranormal sounds, uh, but they're being heard at the same time, but differently. And I thought, man, is that weird. And there was no explanation as to where they were coming from or what was causing it. That's that's really fascinating. I know even for myself, this is something I've experienced a number of times in, in my meditations. I don't know, Mike, if you've experienced this as well. Um, it's Often I use the, the Monroe Institute's HemiSync program to, to meditate because it really, really gets you into some pretty deep meditations. And what I found really interesting is that even though the meditation is just this sort of this white noise that they generate with different frequencies, you basically hear just a wolf, 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 wolf in the background. I have heard a number of times both voices and instruments come through. There's no music. There's no voice. There's nothing there. But I'm and I don't know. It's like I'm picking up on sounds from a different frequency. I'm picking up on. But they're clear as a bell uh, to the point where I've had to go back on the audio to see if there's a tune that's there or an instrument or something that maybe I just hadn't heard before. So even in these situations, you know, people often say, well, you know, there was they, they were imagining it or it was, you know, this or that. But oftentimes, I think, you know, when we are able to pick up on these these you know, various identities, whether it be a sound or a sight or something like that, you know, it makes you wonder, you know, where the brain is. Like if you could if you could hardwire the brain, you know, into a, a you know, an, an MRI or something like that, as you're having these experiences, what what that would look like? What brain waves are you are you floating in? Uh, because I think a lot of the time this stuff is coming through on various, you know, maybe different frequencies. And if you're not tuned in there, then, you know, a person sitting beside you might be like, well, I didn't see anything. What's causing them? What's their origin? Yeah. What's the purpose? I mean, there's another thing I think like metal on metal people would be, hear- be hearing out in the wilderness, like our, our car door slam in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, these crazy patterns keep showing up here and there. Yeah, and another instance uh, that was reported just, it was recently on um, uh, one of Small Town Monsters series. They're doing currently doing a series on uh, uh, Alaskan Bigfoot right now. And that was the one thing that uh, a, f- a friend of ours, Alex Petikoff, recorded was even though he's out in the Kenai Peninsula, there is there was literally nothing else out there. You can't, you, the only way you can get in is to fly or boat. And nobody else is out there. And he recorded clear as day what sounded like a shotgun going off. And both himself and the people that own this this little cabin that they've been investigating heard this. They've recorded it. It's in their documentaries. And there's nobody there. And so, again, it's like these sounds that seem to be coming out of nowhere that, you know, are, you know, they are being recorded. They are being documented. And there's just no rhyme or reason as to why they seem to be there. I just want to talk as well as we're kind of going along with this. 
um, that we haven't touched on, and that is the name Indrid Cold. Oh, yeah. Um, that was something that was brought up in the films that I think a lot of people wonder if that was real. Um, do you guys have any insight as to Indrid Cold and explain to people why that name is so significant? Uh, go ahead, Chad. Do you have any? I don't know if you've gotten into Indrid that much or, or what would you have found out? Yes. And Ingrid Cold's supposedly this thing that showed up and was interacting with some of the witnesses or interacting might be a, a bit of a stretch there. But people thought it was somehow associated where I think in the the movie they portrayed it as this thing just being above us looking down and being able to see a little bit further or farther down the road than we can rather than being some godlike or supernatural entity. But I think out of all the weirdness of the Mothman phenomena and the folklore of it, Ingrid Cold seems to be that part that people are most drawn to. Would you agree with that, Steve? Yes. And uh, the, the film, uh, well, but by the way, uh, Richard Hatter wrote the screenplay to the film. And while it, it took liberties with the book, John Keel, I, I want to say, was very pleased with the screenplay. And it was, it was great. I met Richard Hatter recently at a conference. And uh, he had not read Brett Rain's book on John Keel. In that book, uh, John Keel's literary agent tells a story where Keel was just about giddy over that screenplay because for so many years, people had written crap and had turned Mothman into a monster. He thought, finally, somebody got the basics truce. And she said he was, asked, asked, he was so happy and he was laughing. But uh, so uh, one thing I want to point out, you know, you have this great uh, interaction between the Indrid Cold character and Richard Gere you know, over the telephone, a lot of that was a composite. Uh, there was another in individual, supposedly, that uh, a, a woman named Jay Perra was in contact with Mr. Apple, spelled A-P-O-L. And a lot of that dialogue came from there, just, just as a point of reference. Um, it was Woodrow Derenberger that supposedly met this guy along Route 77 in a long, elongated spaceship that kind of nudged him over to the side of the road and had another one of these... Uh, he, he was a, a little bit like the, the grinning man, a little bit like an MIB with hair slicked back, arms crossed, big grin on his face. And they had one of these pointless conversations that so many people seem to have with these, in quotes, entities. Man, if these are, are guys from other planets, they really are a little bit mundane. We really expect a little more <laughs> out of them, you know? And uh, so he was supposed to have had other, other contacts. The thing is that... Uh, just a, a couple days prior to that, a man contacted Mary Heyer and said, I just got to talk to somebody. And, uh, and and so he got in contact with her and John Keel. This was a very similar experience, but this happened before Derenberger came forward publicly with his uh, Route 77 elongated ship. This guy didn't identify himself as Indrid, but he had another same kind of dude, you know, smile on the face, pointless conversation. And finally, this guy's decided, you know, we're not going to go ahead with this. And, uh, and, and so he says, uh, you know, that scientist fella said we should just forget all about it. And Keel said, what scientist fella? He said, well, I, I don't know. He seemed to know what he was talking about. And he said, well, how did he find out about your story? He said, damned if I know. And, uh, so, and so Keel just shoved it on the side. You know, it's a blind item. What is, what's he going to do? A day or two later, 
Woodrow Derenberger came through with the same story. A few months later, there was another woman in Gallipolis, a nurse coming out of the hospital, and uh, she saw this thing hovering over the parking lot late at night, and it, it lands, and a couple of these characters, very similar, come out. Another, She felt like she was uh, paralyzed. She couldn't move. And uh, another pointless conversation, which you think maybe she was just losing it, the next day, she sees these guys in street clothes in downtown Gallipolis, and one of them nods at her like, oh, yeah, we remember you from the other night, and it freaked her out. She was also having all kinds of bizarre stuff going on on her farm, a uh, strange craft flying overhead, typical haunting phenomenon, cattle mutilations. So there's something to the injured cold phenomenon. But, uh, you know, the, the, I think Derenberger embellished his story later, uh, it's very, very hard to pin down. And there's there's even people out there now kind of perpetuating what I will call the Indrid Cold myth. And and there's one guy out there that even thinks that Indrid was some kind of a mobster. <laughs> oh, yeah, dear. Don't, oh, I know. Boy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a fascinating area, but you can be sure that some of Woodrow Derenberger's stuff where he uh, flew off to Langulos and back in an hour and a half uh, to a, a planet with a lot of scantily clad ladies and uh, it, it doesn't sound like that was really part of the real deal. All of this stuff is just it. It it's so neat when you begin to take this to pieces because you you realize kind of where that line is between the the, the fiction and and the nonfiction. But the fiction or the, the nonfiction, I think, is is far more fascinating, even than the, the the fictional aspects of this case. Like it just gets so strange and so weird, and yet you know we see these patterns throughout. All these different cryptids and cases, like you were saying before, and you know whether it be you know Dogman or you know even leaning into into Bigfoot, which I know is really controversial because there's people there's there's the flesh and blood group, and then there's the people who think that there's something else going on. At at the end of the day, with these these Mothman sightings, what what do you guys think this is? Steve, we'll start with you. Okay, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Go for it. Go for it. The Mothman is some kind of an elemental. I never would have said that before, but it's not physical flesh and blood. It's not simply an apparition. Uh, John Keel used a term, he borrowed a term from Ivan Sanderson, the great British naturalist transplanted to New Jersey, called ultra-terrestrial, which is sort of, he used it as a literary device to try and get a hand, you know, it's not extraterrestrial, it's not crypto-terrestrial, but it, it's something maybe extra-dimensional or whatever. Maybe it's something that we co-create uh, with some kind of intelligence or energy. But uh, he oftentimes, he used the term ultra-terrestrial interchangeably with elemental. And the more you get into the idea of elementals and the, uh, uh, the, the fairies, the little people, and you look at Jacques Vallée's work uh, in Passport to Magonia and see how similar so many of these traditions and folklore are to many modern-day UFO experiences, uh, that it's hard to uh, separate them. So, uh, I, again, I'm just going to go way out of the limb here and say it was some kind of a elemental, a natural force that maybe uh, takes on a bit of the shape of the person viewing it. You know, uh, remember uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, mm -hmm. the Sherlock Holmes guy? Well, he was a paranormal investigator 100-plus years ago. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, where he wrote The World of the Fairies, he inspired J.B. Ryan as well, yeah. Yes, and he, he wrote, he said, the appearance of the fairies is largely due to the person viewing them, sounding like John Keel 100 years ago. So 
That'll be my answer. <laughs> but, and I'll, I'll change it in five minutes. <laughs> Chad, what about you? I'm right there with Steve that I believe more and more as the decades that I've been in this field seem to pile up, I'm leaning more toward it has to be something other than uh, just some unknown species that we haven't found yet or one that we thought was extinct and is not. It has to be something other. I lean more toward ultra terrestrial as well. And what I find fascinating is that for those who sat through the congressional hearings on UAPs, in my opinion, they were alluding to the same fact that these things are far stranger than just something we thought was visiting from a nearby planet. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree. I know my my opinion of of a lot of these creatures has really changed over the last I would say three four years. Uh, where you know, before I would have argued to the death was as I say that some of these things maybe not Mothman but some of these things were you know something that was flesh and blood and I've had enough encounters now that I'm like there's no way there, there's no way these things are there's there's some there's there's some type of entity and it is so strange um, I was mentioning at the beginning that I had kind of a weird thing happen just a couple of weekends ago uh, I was given a a, a tip. Uh, along with some some friends of mine, and we ended up going to this very remote location that was sort of way out in the the sticks here in Alberta, and we had a really strange thing happen where we saw, uh, we, as we kind of waited around in this spot where we were kind of told to wait, um, we saw in the trees this bright bright light show up in the tree, and it was it was incredible like there was nothing out there i mean there was no way that this this light was coming from anywhere and this bright light showed up and we saw something moving in front of it we were far enough away that we couldn't make out what it was and but just as quickly it completely disappeared and when we got back into the truck and we turned the truck around and we cranked the headlights on that spot what we had seen not only wasn't there but the landscape wasn't there either and like I have no idea what the hell we were looking at. Like none. I mean, we all got back in the truck and we were like, "What did we? Do? What just happened? What did we just see?" It was crazy. It was absolutely hands down the craziest thing in the top three percentile of things that I've seen in twenty years. But it was absolutely bizarre, and it reminded me so much. And I kind of wanted to save it to the end because it reminded me so much of what John Keel was talking about when he said there was, there's kind of these window areas where this stuff seems to be popping up and happening. And it's, it's really wild. So I, I don't know, like it's the, as I say, I can't explain it. It was, it was so strange. We, I mean, we were all very excited about it afterwards. We had no idea what we were looking at. I don't know whether it, like you'd throw that into the category of, of portal or UFO or what, but there's absolutely no question that it happened. So, and that was with four witnesses. So it was it was pretty interesting. You know, Morgan, back in the old days, I was a very happy ET guy. I mean, they were coming from other planets. They were collecting soil samples. I love the stories from uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen. You know, all these close encounters of the third kind. And then my buddy, I mean, I had read some Keel, but then my buddy and I heard about this book, Operation Trojan Horse. So before we even read it, here we are, bad mouthing John Keel. What does he think he's doing trying to pull all this together, you know, <laughs> right. trying to destroy yeah. my happy little paradigm here? And so I came kicking and screaming and read the book and had to consider it. And after getting out of therapy, I read uh, Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magodia. 
And then I had to go back into therapy again. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all on that same that same trip. You know, where you you think you've you think you've got it. Something happens and you go, Oh my god, everything just ties together and it just makes sense and, and you know, you're you're all excited and then yeah, something comes along and all of a sudden, you know, your bubble pops and you're sitting back where you were, you know, at the beginning of your your investigations. I I've got a name for it. It's the Red Queen effect. Remember the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland tells her if you're gonna get anywhere, you gotta run faster and faster. And poor Alice is running as fast as you can. And the trees are all staying in the same place. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna close this off with something that John Keel said at the end of his first article about Mothman, when he stated that it wasn't the creatures that were in question of existing, but how could we overlook this for so long? And I think that really, to me, sums up what it is. And I don't know if we're overlooking it, but or whether we we just weren't ready to receive receive it we had to get up to speed with what's going on in order to see it but i i think it's it's fascinating you guys have definitely shed some some amazing light on this today um mike do you got any got any thoughts on this no but i'm going to go off and read strange creatures from space and time right now right john keel (laughs) the original printing has got this phenomenal frank frazetta painting on the cover yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, all right, good deal. Yeah, is there any books that you guys would would recommend people to 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 grab on this? Obviously, John Keel's work is is amazing. Is there is there anything else you guys think that people would benefit from? Well, go ahead, Chad. I mean, we'll, we'll be here another hour. I think you can find a ton of stuff. Steve was involved in a high strangeness book that uh, recently came out. You could find that on Amazon. I really love uh, Jerome Clark's work on it. Um, um, one time I was uh, out to dinner, not name dropping with uh, Jerome, and uh, he was telling all kinds of kill stories. And a lot of people think they were, you know, bitter enemies. And at some point they were, but I could tell he had a lot of respect for kill, even if he disagreed with him. But there was one time he came back from the restroom and he's like, you know, the thing about hanging out with John Keel was, and I thought, how amazing is this when the guy you're having you know, dinner with comes back and says the thing about oh. hanging out with John Keel was. So, um, yeah, I recommend that as well. But uh, Steve's been involved with pretty much any Mothman project in the last 200 years. <laughs> I, I got it in, Steve. I got it in. <laughs> you, you know, it's true that I, I taught Methuselah how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. But continue, Chad. Oh, no. <laughs> Chad, if you're done, I have a book to recommend as well. I don't oh. want to cut you off. Oh, no, please go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay, speaking of Jerome Clark... Uh, dropping names, I met Jerome back in uh, 1976 at the MUFON Symposium where Dr. J. Allen Hynek was speaking. Mm. And the name of his talk was Swap Gas Plus 10 and Counting. Very cool. But uh, Jerome Clark and Lauren Coleman co-wrote two books together way back. Now, I don't know that they, they uh, I think they have moved on from some of these ideas, but I still think these books are absolutely top-notch. The first one is called The Unidentified. The second one is called Creatures from the Outer Edge. And you have been able to get them both in one volume in trade paper size. I think that they're they're an absolute, uh, you know, must to read. If you can get your hands on those, a great, great book. But uh, like I say, we would, uh, Chad and I would be here another two hours and uh, to, to, to recommend all the, the great books and authors uh, that we have uh, encountered. Now, if you happen to go to the Mothman Museum, you will be overrun with a selection of Mothman books where you could grab a shopping cart worth 
and uh, be on your way with everything you need. And you guys are going to be at the Mothman Festival as well. Yes. Uh, both talking about that. And then is the weekend of the September, is it the 15th? It, it's the 16th and 17th. It, it's, uh, it, it always falls the third weekend in September. Oh, and do we have time for me to give one more plug for the festival? Yes. Okay, listen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be crowded. But if you want the time of your life, if you want to be terrified beyond belief, you want to get on the, the tour, one of the tours in the TNT area, that we take people out Saturday night in the dark into the dreaded TNT area where the Mothman was seen. Now, this is the only thing that cost a few bucks, but you've got to get in early Saturday morning, go to the information booth, buy your ticket. I am one of the tour guides. I'm there to, uh, and we, I want to say that 86% of the people that go out do come back. Your odds are extremely <laughs> good. And even even Chad, Chad made it back one year. Knock on wood. I, I have to echo that. Yeah, just... Um, I have to echo that. The last time I spoke a few years ago at the Mothman Festival, the highlight of the entire festival was the hayride that Steve is one of the tour guides of where you actually sit on the back of a, a hay trailer and parade your way through the night <laughs> where these events took place. And you can watch it on television. You can read about it, but there's something magical about being there. And I think Steve and uh, my colleague Kevin Lee Nelson made fun of me because there were a few times I jumped uh, pretty high on the tour, not on purpose. They weren't jump scaring me, but I was just in that atmosphere where I was kind of spoke. Guarantee flyover of the Mothman. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that is a tall order, Steve. <laughs> the, the, the last thing is I will be the MC this year. So, Oh, how wow. fun. I will be able to, as I introduce Chad Lewis, who knows what I'm going to do to get back at Chad. <laughs> I was just going to say, well, now nobody's going to go to Chaz's show. What are you like? <laughs> it, it doesn't, it's not at the same time as uh, uh, Steve's Hayride, uh, Mines During the Safety of the Daylight. And it also gives you some edge there, Chad, over Steve's Hayride. If he talks down your talk and you're after him, you realize that you are in a strategic position to dismantle whatever Steve has got coming up. I'm just saying. Listen, Morgan, all the young ladies flocked on my hayride. You know, it's that charm, <laughs> that charisma, you know. That's what it is. That's why you go to the Mothman Festival, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. Steve Ward's charisma. There you go. <laughs> this was wonderful, you guys. Thank you so much for shedding light on this. Everybody needs to go to the Mothman Festival this year. I hope at some point I can make it down there and, and they they all need to tell them they need to book me and then I'll then I'll get down there. That would be great. That would be wonderful. I would love to do that. So yeah, let we'll put that in the ether to the universe and let them work that out. But um, this has been awesome. Thank you guys so much. And this is fantastic. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I love those guys so much. They're so fun to talk to. They're so much fun. And boy, does it ever leave you with a ton of questions. Right. Even though <laughs> they're, they're really great at what they do, but... 
what just happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, the way I look at all of these episodes that we do, I don't think we can ever say definitively what something was, what something is, unless, you know, there is like some very well peer-reviewed documentation about blah, 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 blah. This is the way it is. So what is this thing? We talked in our intro about the thing that we saw in Alberta and the way these guys describe it. I'm thinking... Yeah, it's kind of similar to that. Very much so. Yeah, I, th I think so too. And what I find really interesting, no matter how many of, of these shows that we do, is that it really does get you wondering, what exactly are we not seeing in our world? Mm. One thing that gets me about these encounters is people will see something or experience something, whether it be Mothman or bits and pieces of a haunting or some sort of paranormal occurrence. And it makes me wonder if we're almost blinking in and out. Right. of some other deeper reality or space mm. that maybe we're not seeing in moments where we're busy and maybe our minds are cluttered and, and things like that. And I know oftentimes we hear people saying, well, these things, maybe they're some sort of interdimensional creature. And I just kind of wonder, maybe we're the ones that are kind of blinking in and out of the reality of the rest of our world. I kind of like the idea of it being a harbinger of doom. People have likened it to Pazuzu, which was the right. Mesopotamian demon god from The Exorcist. <laughs> Mothman kind of looks like that. I'm not saying it is Pazuzu, but it's a very interesting theory. The timing of it, all these sightings happening prior to this bridge collapse that killed all these people, and then... Essentially, afterward, things go silent. Yeah. Was it the universe in some way trying to tell us that this kind of thing was happening? If you look at quantum physics, all events are happening simultaneously. So that event had, had already happened somewhere in the quantum universe when it took place in our universe. So is it a dark piece of our psyche leaking into this timeline leading up to things? I mean, I've had premonitory dreams. Sure. So how could this maybe, this could maybe be some sort of premonition? There were a lot of people who died in this. I mean, there was more than 40 people who passed away in this particular incident. The timing of it around Christmas time was so horrendous. Yeah. You know, everybody is supposed to be happy and healthy and celebrating family, yet here they are burying people. And you just actually gave me an aha moment just now. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting because you're talking about the idea of this sort of being a, some sort of like harbinger of some sort, but, mm -hmm. but the idea that this is something based off of our own consciousness, our own interpretation of things. Right. We've talked about this on the show before, the Global Consciousness Project, where, you know, a lot of scientists are measuring how the global consciousness reacts to events and things like that. And they've mm -hmm. determined many a time that the global consciousness seems to register the event before it actually happens. Like there's there's dips in the RNG data, the random number generator data before the event starts. So it makes you wonder, like, if that's true, what is our consciousness capable of manifesting to get our attention before these things happen? Is this something that is not maybe of another world, but of this one, and we're not understanding what our minds are able to do? Yep, and this is why we do this show. This is why we do the show! I love it! So thank you all for joining us on this eerie expedition, dear listeners. And remember, the line between the natural and the supernatural is often a thin one. Until next time, stay curious, friends. Yeah, that's a good idea. Isn't it?
Supernatural Circumstances is a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can learn more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and learn more about me, Mike Brown, and listen to my show, Dark Poutine, at darkpoutine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. <laughs>